You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Amen. Thank you, Michael. Excited to hear Michael is going to be preaching next Sunday here. And so I originally said, hey, you know, why don't we take a Sunday where you preach and I'll lead worship. And he just laughed. And I wasn't kidding. But uh, I'm not going to. So you should still come. So uh, my name is Jamin. If you would get your Bibles and turn to Micah chapter 6. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 8. I had a little hard time finding uh, Micah this week. And so uh, it is towards the end of the Old Testament, about 20 or so pages before the New Testament begins. Uh, and as you're turning there, uh, my name is Jamin. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Citizens Church. If you are a guest with us, if this is your first, maybe second or third time, we're just so uh, grateful to have you here with us this morning. Uh, we are finishing a series that we've been in in the month of January, where we're really, we've talked about it a few different ways, but really what we're doing is asking the question, what does it look like for the people of God to mirror God's heart to the world around them and around the world? And so that's meant talking about the necessity to share our faith. And that's meant talking about the sanctity and the dignity of all human life, starting in the womb. And that's meant last week talking about how God has called us to be a people who love without partiality and to be a picture of the multicultural gathering of believers that will one day exist in the new world Jesus is coming. And we want to be a glimpse of that even now. And this morning we're talking about justice and we'll talk about an organization that's special to our church called IJM. But let me start this way. When uh, Addie, Addie's my middle child, she's six now, when she was about four uh, or so, she was trying to get something in her out of her closet. Now Addie, uh, her room is always full of stuff. She's a bit of a hoarder. I don't know if you have one of those, but she, her room is filled with clutter. Uh, and so that makes her closet especially dangerous because she has all kinds of clutter in her closet. And it's one of those that is just, it's a very fragile environment, meaning if you move one thing, everything could come crashing down. That happened to Addie a couple years ago. She was trying to get a game or something and all of a sudden stuffed animals and toys and board games just rained down on her and hurt her a little bit, but she also just got stuck. She couldn't, all the stuff had fallen around her and she didn't know how to get out. And so I am walking through the house not knowing what had happened and I just hear her crying. And I open her door and I go in and I can't find her and then I hear her crying in her closet and I open the door to her closet and she's just stuck there. So I help her get out. And I hold her and she cries even louder. And so I said, Addie, are you hurt? And she shook her head. I said, are you scared? And she said, yeah. I said, why are you scared? And she said, because I cried and cried and no one could hear me. We were outside when everything fell on her. And so I was coming back inside into the house and heard her crying. And so she had sat, sat, sat there for a few minutes, I'm sure, crying. And, and, we didn't, and we didn't come. And so I just said, baby, I'm so sorry. I heard you and I came to help you. And she said, yeah, but it took a long time. I said, I'm sorry. Next time I'll be here faster. And she said, Dad, will you always hear me when I cry? And I said, yes, I will always hear and I'll always respond. And it was one of those just sweet moments, like never leave home. Also, please clean your room, you know. <laughs> and uh, here's the reality about that story. There's no real punchline to it. That's a very normal experience in the roller household. That happened two years ago. I could have also told you about what happened two days ago when she fell on her roller skates and she cried 
and I went to help her. In fact, the only thing that's maybe a little unusual about that story is it took us longer to get to her than it usually does, and she had come to expect that when I cry, dad comes. And that's just a normal, built-in to the relationship between fathers and their children is that fathers hear and respond to their kids when they're hurt. They hear and respond to their children when they cry. If you are a parent, a grandparent, or even if you're just around young kids, you probably have your own story of coming to comfort a child when they are crying. And it's just part of what it means, especially to be a parent, especially to be a dad, to hear and respond to your children's cries. This morning we're talking about justice and finishing our our January series talking about justice, and and we will end talking about a ministry, uh, an organization called IJM who's all about justice. But before we get there, I want to spend the bulk of our time looking at God's word and seeing this truth that connected to the role of Christian, built into the identity and function of what it means to be a Christian, is that Christians hear and respond to the cries of the vulnerable. And what should be the case, like stories of dads responding to the cries of their daughters, like those are just normal and everyday and nothing very punchline about them. It should be the case that Christians responding to the cries of the vulnerable are just normal, everyday, common stories. And when, when believers in Jesus respond to, hear, and respond to the cries of the vulnerable, it's what the Bible calls justice. Micah 6, we'll start with verses 1 through 5 just to give some context for The passage will camp out in. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you, mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you, enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Micah is a prophet in Judah around 700 BC, uh, and Judah had a lot of problems. Judah is a people, it's not a, a guy. It was, but here it's a people. And one of their problems that they have is that the wealthy and the powerful in Judah oppressed the vulnerable while other wealthy and powerful did nothing about it. It's one of the main contentions God has with the people throughout Micah's letter. And so in other words, there are a lot of cries coming from a lot of closets in Judah and no one's responding. No one's offering help. And so God has a question for them. He's going to ask it, what did I require of you? What did I expect of your life? Which is such an important question, like where we dial in just and can't afford to miss is when God, who we all would probably agree is what's most important in life, when God is telling us what he cares about most to be important in our lives, we should just perk up a bit. And here's what he's going to say. He's going to call them to court. Verse 1 says, uh, plead your case before the mountains. It's this, just like the prophets do throughout the Bible, it's this beautiful, evocative imagery that God is going to have a conversation with Judah. He's creating this courtroom, and the mountains serve as the jury. 
plead your case to the mountains. And what we know about the mountains is that they are unmoved, they're not going anywhere, and they always agree with God because creation sings God's praises. And so he says, plead your case before the mountains, and then God uh, reminds them what he's done for them. I rescued you out of slavery in Egypt. I sent you Moses. I sent you these leaders. And so your problem is not with me. Your problem is not with what I have, have or have not done for you. And then six and seven, they're going to respond to God. He's called them to court. They're going to plead their case. And here's what they say. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Do you hear it? They try to plead their case before God and where they start is with empty religious ritual. Okay, God, essentially we'll offer sacrifices. It'd be the modern day. Look, I'll go back to church. I'll start attending again. And then they offer to God, they try to impress God with their wealth. We'll offer thousands of rams. It's more than what God required. 10,000 of rivers of oil. In other words, they reach into their deep pockets that are full of resources and full of money and they try to bribe God. They try to buy their way out. And then it gets really disturbing. They look around at the gods of the other nations who require child sacrifice and they offer God their own children. It's what those other gods like. Do you, are you swayed by this? Are you pleased with this? And so what you see coming out of their response is one, they don't know God. They don't know the heart of God. And you get among them, the people of Judah, the recipe for an unjust society, the recipe for a wicked society. And you hear it in their response. It is a society of people who practice religious action that is divorced from a changed heart a people who believe that their money is what's going to save them, and then a people who believe about people that they're dispensable, a people who believe about people that they can be sacrificed. And here's God's response in verse eight. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. In the courtroom that he's constructed, they plead their case, they miss his heart, and God says, I already told you, to a people who were negligent of the vulnerable, to a people who are oppressive to the vulnerable, who think God can be bought and people can be sacrificed, he said, no, 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 I wanted you to do justice, and I wanted you to love kindness, and I wanted you to walk humbly. It is the response. Micah 6.8 is one of the richest verses in all the Bible. Theologians have lauded over it. One of them called it the quintessence of commandments as the prophets understood them. Others have called this verse a one-line summary of the entire law. And they're all connected. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. And we'll come back to that in just a few minutes. But what I want to do is I want to ask the question that we will need the entire scope of the Bible to answer. What does it mean to do justice? If God is saying what I require of the life of the people of God is that they do justice, we should be clear about what that means. And my experience with that word is largely one-sided. When I think of justice, I think of it as punishing crime or holding criminals accountable, which it is. Uh, justice for me happens in a courtroom. When I think of justice, I think of the first uh, TV show that I ever binge watched. 
Do you guys remember the first show you ever binge watched? If you've, if you've never binge watched a show, you're, you're a better person than I am, but I have a lot. And the first one I binge watched was, uh, I was a freshman in high school and I was with my family over Christmas. We would go to Oklahoma City for Christmas. That's where my grandparents lived. And my aunt and uncle brought this DVD set and we said, they said, we have to watch this. And it was season one of the show 24. Anybody? Okay. And 24, if you don't know, 24 is based on a 24-hour, it's based on a day. And each show is an hour of the, of the day, right? And so it's 24 one-hour episodes. And someone's like, we can't watch this. And they said, look, just watch the first one and see if you like it. And so you watch the first one, and here's how they go. The first one is the first hour of the day that the show is covering, and they all end on a cliffhanger. It's like unfair. They all end with something happening, and then the very last scene of every episode is just a clock ticking down to the end of the day. And you can't not watch the next one. Our family finished the whole thing in a day and a half. <laughs> Nobody slept. Everyone fought. It was incredible. And it became a tradition for us. The next season would come out, and you weren't allowed to watch it until we came back together for Christmas, and we would binge watch it together as a family. And it got, it got weird. Like, people in my family started talking about Jack Bauer like he was part of our family, right? Like they knew him personally, which Jack would have hated, by the way. Um, but I can remember one of the seasons, it was maybe year three, uh, there's this, it, it all kind of crescendos. It's maybe the last hour of the show and Jack Bauer catches the bad guy, loads him up in the police van and he is being driven off to prison, you know, to go and be held accountable and to be tried. And one of my family members just overcome with emotion yells out justice. And that is largely how I understood the word. And it is, that is justice, holding people accountable um, and, and, and when wickedness is held accountable and when it's judged, that is justice. But for a long time, that's the only way I understood the word. In the Bible, when it uses the word justice, it uses it in two different senses, both retributive and restorative. If you're familiar with the Bible Project, guys, if you're not familiar with it, check out their stuff. Those are videos that are worth binge watching. But the Bible Project guys have a helpful podcast on the way the Bible uses justice. It's three hours long, but they talk about how justice, if you just pay attention to the word, it carries two senses. It carries a retributive sense, which is punishing the wicked, holding the wicked accountable. But it also carries a restorative sense, which means hearing and responding to the cries of the vulnerable. And in fact, if you just look at the amount of times that word is used in the Old Testament, nine times out of 10, it's restorative, not retributive. You see both in Job. If you know the story of Job, uh, he has been through this awful suffering. To make matters worse, he has really terrible friends. He needed to go through Group Connect because the friends he had were not great. And so they come in and they tell him that he is suffering because of his own sin, of sin in his life. And so he spends chapter after chapter after chapter in the book of Job defending his life. No, I lived righteously. I pleased God. And at one point in that defense, he talks about he lived a life of justice. And here's what he says. Job 29, starting in verse 14. He says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. He's saying I wore justice, it was like my attire. 
If you think about um, those who maybe are really into their sports team or really into their college, and so they wear the brand, they wear the jersey, they wear the hat, they wear the t-shirt, and what it says is it says in what they wear, it's showing you something that they care deeply about or they just at least are passionate about. And Job says, what I wore was justice. The clothes I put on revealed a heart that cared about justice. And here's how that came out of his life. 15, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. What did justice mean to Job? What sense did he understand it in? Both. You hear it, Uh, justice, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous, made him drop his prey. That's retributive justice. He's holding wickedness accountable. Also, I was eyes to the blind, and he calls it justice. It's restorative. I was feet to the lame. If we were to personalize this, what Job is saying is, there were times in my life when I carried those who couldn't walk, and that was justice. There were times in my life when there were children around me who didn't have a dad and I was a dad to them. And that's justice. Job says, I heard the cries in the closet and I responded because that's what the people of God do. And that's how the Bible defines justice. And so here's why it matters so much is because this is a reality for the people of God because it's a reality about God. When God defines himself and describes himself in the Bible, he describes himself as a God who cares about this, as a God who hears and responds to the cries of the vulnerable. And he calls it justice, Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Hear this. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Not only does the Bible talk about God who is committed to this restorative justice, there is a group of people that is always connected to God's justice. Uh, Theologians call it the quartet of the vulnerable. It's these four groups of people that you see over and over and over again connected to the justice of God. It's the widow and the orphan and the poor and the immigrant. You see it in Psalm 146, seven through nine. God executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free, opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down, loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. In the Psalms, when the psalmist is introducing God, he says, you know what's true about God? He is a father to the fatherless. A protector of widows and orphans is God in his holy dwelling. Psalm 68.5, it's all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible that near to the heart of God is that he hears and responds to the cries of vulnerable people because he's just. Now, if we could pause for a minute and just consider what this means about our God. Tim Keller wrote a book called uh, Generous Justice. It's, it's, it has influenced me greatly on this topic, influenced a lot of what we said so far. One of the points he makes in the book is in responses to the verses we just read. He just asks the question, 
If this is the way the biblical authors introduce God, how true must something be about you for it to make it into the way you introduce yourself? How important must something be to you for it to make it into the way that you define yourself to other people, right? When I introduce myself, I don't start with things that are unimportant to me, right? Hey, my name's Jamin. I drive a Chevy Cruze. Humble brag, right? Now, I don't start with those things. Those things aren't important to me. I start with, hi, my name is Jamin. I'm married to Carrie because being a husband is important to me and Carrie is special to me. Hi, my name is Jamin. Asher, Adeline, and Ayla are my children because father is so important to who I am and my kids are so special to me. My name is Jamin. I pastor Citizens Church because uh, being a pastor is so important to who I am and you, church, are so special to me. And so think about that. When the writers of the Bible talk about God, they introduce him and say, father to the fatherless. Defender of widows and orphans is God in his holy dwelling because being a God who hears and responds to the cries of the vulnerable is so important to God to who he is and the vulnerable are so special to him that he leads out in it in his introduction. He boasts in that. And if you just think with me, what does that mean is true about him? What other things must be true about God for him to be that kind of God? Look, if you lost everything, if all of your financial and economic nightmares came true in a moment, you had nothing, you needed everything, and you were to think about your relationships and you were to think about your acquaintances and you were to ask the question, who in my life do I know would help me? Who do I know if I pick up the phone and I make the call, I know they will respond to my need? And if there is someone like that in your life, what else is true about them? What other words would describe them? Oh, they're gentle and they're compassionate and they're generous, right? They're, they're not uh, stingy, they're not cold, they're not harsh, they're not judgmental, they're not so caught up in their own life that they have no time for interruptions, especially the kind of interruptions that a needy person brings to your life. No, they're loving and they're gentle and they're empathetic and they're generous and they're compassionate. And so hear me, if God, if God describes himself as one who is near to the needy and eager to hear and respond, how much more true must all of those things be about him? Look, if when you think of God, you think of a being who is stingy or cold or apathetic or disinterested in your needs, God would like to introduce himself to you, my friend because he's none of those things. Like I am the kind of God that defends widows and orphans. I do not ignore the cry coming from the closet and he doesn't ignore yours. Because God is just, this is who he is. He hears and responds to vulnerable people and he expects of his followers that they do the same. God commands in his word that we be people of justice. And he means retributive and restorative. Deuteronomy 27, 19, cursed be anyone who withholds the justice due to the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. Proverbs 31, 9, 
Defend the justice of the poor and needy. Those are commands. God commands when the people of God are, uh, are creating and building out their new society in the Old Testament, he commands that they structure their society in such a way that no one would be poor and that all the vulnerable would be seen and heard. If you are doing a read through the Bible plan, a lot of those start in January. If you keep going, you'll make it to Leviticus in about a month or so. And if you push through the first 18 chapters of Leviticus, you'll come to Leviticus 19 and you will read about the gleaning laws. Now, let me save you some time so that when you get there, you don't have to go look them up. Here's what they meant. God commanded that those of his people who owned land, who make money by harvesting the crop of that land, he says, when the harvest comes in, don't reap everything you can. Leave the outer edges of your land unreaped and don't pick up all of your crop. You know why? Because the immigrant and the widow and the poor and the orphan could come into that land and could eat off of your land. When you go to harvest your vineyard, don't take every grape off the tree. Leave some grapes on the tree. Leave some grapes on the ground so that the poor and the immigrant and the widow and the orphan could come in and they could eat. Can you, can you hear how crazy that sounds? In God's economy, what he's saying is, don't, don't maximize your profit. It's not yours, it's mine. And because it's mine, it's theirs. It's the vulnerables. And, and look, it's like in our world, you take all that you can get and you definitely get all that you earned. And you think God's asking me not to maximize profit. Well, that's bad business. Maybe, but it's a just life according to God. You know, we have men and women in this church who have structured their businesses in this way. They have structured their businesses so that they allow others to glean off their profits. They don't pick every dollar off the tree. They leave some dollars on the ground because their God is a just God and because they care about the justice of Collin County. And that means their profit goes to babies. Their profit goes to ministries that help people with special needs. Their profit goes to elderly people who are in need because God is the kind of God who hears and responds to the cries of the vulnerable and requires of his people to do and be the same. It's all over the Bible. If you're doing your Bible reading plan and you keep going, when you get to Luke, you know what you'll see? You'll see that the very first sermon Jesus ever preaches is a sermon about justice. It's Luke chapter four, verses 18 through 19. He goes into the synagogue in his hometown. He pulls out the scroll of Isaiah and he reads this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus sits down and says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah prophesied about a servant of justice that would come and he would administer this restorative justice in God's world that's been broken by sin. And Jesus comes and says, that servant of justice you've been waiting for is here and it's me and that's what I've come to be about. Yes, forgiveness and grace and salvation, but the outworking of that is justice. Now, let me be very clear about what the Bible's not saying. And let me be very clear on a point that I just cannot afford for anyone to misunderstand. What we're not saying and what the Bible's not saying is that helping vulnerable people is the gospel or that helping vulnerable people is what saves anyone. 
There's a pastor at the end of the 1800s who planted a church in New York and he was surrounded by all this poverty and surrounded by all this oppression and he was so moved by the needs of the people that he began to teach that the gospel was about meeting physical and social and economic needs. And so he changed his theology and he stopped saying that Jesus' death was in our place for our sin, that we could be made right with God. And he started saying that Jesus' death was really just an example of selflessness that should uh, be a, a model for us and should come out of our lives in helping those around us in need. And his voice was one of the voices that gave birth to a movement that's still around today called the social gospel movement. And friends, it is a lie. It's a perversion. It feels compassionate and it feels sincere, but it is a perversion of the gospel. Let me put it this way. Look, if, if I lost everything and if you didn't know me and if I came up to you and I am thirsty and I am hungry and I am homeless and I ask you, Christian, what's my greatest need? I pray to God that you tell me your greatest need is that you need to be reconciled with God through Jesus. Your greatest need is that your sin separated you from a holy God and in love he sent his son to die your death so that you could be both at peace and at home with the creator of the world. The gospel is not a cup of cold water to one who is thirsty. The gospel is Christ crucified, risen, ascended to the right hand of the Father, ruling as the vindicated Savior King of all the world who one day will return to consummate that kingdom over all the world. But... If you believe that, and if I believe that, one of the ways belief in the gospel will come out of your life is care and concern and love for vulnerable people. In fact, Jesus will make it at times in his preaching the litmus test to whether or not the gospel has taken root. Matthew 25, he separates all those who claim to be believers into the sheep and the goats. You remember this? And uh, the sheep inherit eternal life. The goats are condemned. And the difference between the sheep and the goats is one practiced justice and the other didn't. Jesus said, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was homeless and you came and you offered me shelter. I was in prison and you offered companionship. And, and they say, when? When did we do that? And Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, he's meaning when you did it to other Christians who were in need, you were doing it to me. It's what we looked at last week. Last week, someone comes and asks Jesus, what does it look like to love my neighbor? And he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan, the difference between the Samaritan and the two guys who walked by is the Samaritan offered restorative justice to the man in need. He was the one who showed love without partiality and that love came out of his life. The love was in his heart, comes out of his life as justice and help and hearing the cries. So hear me, I'll say it like this, um, while offering justice to the vulnerable does not change their heart, not responding to the needs of the vulnerable is a sign that my heart hasn't changed, according to Jesus. To put it a different way, if the grace of the gospel is in your heart, help for vulnerable people will come from your hands. It will. It's the problem that God had with Judah that he sent Michael to tell them about, Micah. He says, look, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. He's not saying you should have done this to earn my love. The hinge of that really rich verse is right in the middle when he says, love 
kindness. That word kindness is the Hebrew word chesed, and it's the word that's used to describe God's covenant love for his people. What he's saying to Judah, his covenant people, is you were to love the fact that you're loved. You were to love and live a life that loved that you are in covenant with a covenant-keeping God. You know why? Because if you love that God has rescued you and that you are special to him, that will come out of your life as a life of justice. And that's where you failed. Did not know me, and then in not knowing me, you did not rest in and delight in and live out of the salvation I already offered for you, the covenant that I already made with you. And so listen, what prevents people from entering into other people's needs, this isn't holistic, but what prevents people from entering other people's needs are two lies, the lie of scarcity and the lie of entitlement. The lie of scarcity says I need to hold on to what I have because there's not enough and I can't afford to share. The lie of entitlement says I earned all I have so you don't deserve for me to share. But for the people who live for us as Christians, who love that we are loved by God in Jesus, that love crushes both lies. If we are a people who God has made covenant with us through his own cross and we love that he loves us with an unchanging covenant love to the lie of scarcity, it says, what I most need I have in abundance so I can share what I have with joy. To the lie of entitlement, it says what I most needed, I couldn't possibly earn. It was gifted to me, so what I have I can share with humility because it all belongs to God, all of my life. And if we are that people who love the way in which God has loved us in Jesus, that will come out of our lives as a life of justice, as those who hear the cries because Christians hear and respond to the cries of the vulnerable. Which, friends, means this, before we talk anything else, it means personally asking ourselves the question, in my life, who around me is crying out for help? Who around me is waiting for someone to show up? I wrestled with that personally this week, thinking about those that God has placed in close proximity to me, my neighbors, do I know their stories So often I think for many of us, it's not that we are apathetic to the needs of those around us, but that we are ignorant to the needs of those around us because we are so caught up in our own lives that we don't stop to discover where the needs are or we don't stop to ask questions that would draw out those needs. To be a follower of Jesus is to be someone who has been commissioned to fill their life with stories of responding to the cries of the vulnerable. And that is something that is so true here at our church. I think about our mercy ministry here at Citizens. Our mercy ministry exists to help those in need around us, not necessarily those who come to our church, but those who are our neighbors. And we call it our mercy ministry. We could call it biblically our justice ministry, but that might scare some people off. So we call it our mercy ministry. But what it is, is it's a justice ministry. And since becoming our own church back in August, that ministry has helped walk with six families who came to the church in need. It has helped sponsored 83 students to get them what they needed to go back to school. It helped in December, 92 kids and 50 moms and dads have Christmas this last year because God hears and responds to the cries of the vulnerable citizens church, does the same and mirrors God's heart. And then it's why we are so proud of and grateful for the work of IJM. IJM is an organization that helps rescue vulnerable people around the world from some of the most 
uh, awful and oppressive circumstances. And so what IJM is doing is IJM is hearing the cries of people around the world and then amplifying those cries so that the world can't ignore them. And here's what they're amplifying. Here's what they're making known. That what is true in our world is that slavery and oppression is as prevalent now as it's ever been in human history. There are over 40 million people who are captive to some form of slavery right now. Over 40 million people whose time is not their own, whose bodies are not their own, but owned by someone else. Human trafficking is a $140 billion industry annually around the globe. $140 billion. Behind that number, which is large, are people, are the fangs of the wicked making money off trafficking an image of God. One in four victims of slavery is a child. One in four. We live in a world where there are millions of boys and girls crying in closets, wondering if anyone can hear. Who do you think, friend, in light of what the Bible says about justice, who do you think God expects to respond to those cries? His church, his people. IJM is hearing and responding to those cries. Uh, they have, since their inception, they have rescued 45,000 people from slavery and oppression. Through their field offices around the world, they are working to protect 150 million people across the globe. And what I love about our partnership with IJM is it did not come because we stumbled across it or we were looking to do something. We're partnering with IJM because there are people in our church, just like everything else we've talked about this month, there are people in our church who are already right in the middle of that fight. If you were here at about, I don't know, 1130, you heard from Jesse and Jenna earlier in our service. Jenna read our scripture beautifully. Jesse led us in prayer beautifully. Jesse and Jenna are members here, and three years ago, they helped launch the DFW volunteer leadership team of IJM. They are volunteers, get no money from the organization. They saw a need, and they helped launch a volunteer team that without them would not have existed in DFW. And so IJM is present in DFW in so many ways because of the work of and the response of Jesse and Jenna. Our partnership, us doing this right now on this Sunday, is largely a result of Jesse and Jenna. And if I could just stop for just a second, what I have loved so much about this month, what I meant the very first Sunday in January, which feels like a year ago, but what I meant the very first Sunday in January when I said we are so, like all of the hopes that we had for what God could do with us as Citizens Church, so we, we are so much, we already are so much of what I'd hoped to be. And the case in point for that has been when we've mentioned these things that are close to the heart of God, we have not had to go out and discover that work somewhere else. But in mentioning what's close to the heart of God, we've been able to look out at our church and see a myriad of ways where our brothers and sisters here at Citizen already have close to their heart what's close to God's heart. And Jesse and Jenna are the latest example of that. They helped to start this volunteer team. They have been champions for the oppressed around the world, both married, both moms with young kids both moved by the cries of the vulnerable to respond to their needs. And so what they've helped us do is they've helped us partner with IJM in a very specific way. They have helped us partner with IJM's office in Guatemala. 
and we've been in partnership with IJM for two or three months now. In Guatemala, sexual violence against children is rampant. One in four girls is a victim of sexual violence in Guatemala. 15 years ago, IJM started trying to help, started trying to enter into the injustice in Guatemala and start an office there, and they were essentially told it's impossible because the system's so broken, and they tried anyway. And since they were told it's impossible, they've rescued almost 300 people from slavery and oppression. The majority of those that they've rescued have gone through IJM's survivor care program. Those are real people. I just said numbers, but what I hope you heard are young women, young men, families, whose cries mean a lot to our God. So we're gonna partner with them. We've partnered with them formally as a church. Part of what that means is we have a home group here led by uh, the Marvins, and that home group is going to be receiving prayer requests directly from that office and praying for them in specific ways, sending them gifts, encouraging them. And then also you will have an opportunity to partner with the Guatemala office by becoming a freedom partner. What we're hoping to do, a freedom partner is $24 a month, and what it does is it helps provide care for survivors in Guatemala. Our goal was to have 25 Freedom Partners, which would offer care for 10 survivors a year. Then nine o'clock already sponsored over 25. But don't let that scare you. They're gonna hold that against you if you don't at least exceed that because you don't know them like I do. They talk about you on Sundays like this. So uh, you'll have an opportunity when we leave here. But instead of it just being numbers and dollars, what I really hope that we're able to hone in on is that as the people of God, just like stories of dads responding to the cries of daughters are just normal. My prayer is that stories of Christians responding to the cries of the vulnerable are just something that absolutely fills this place because it fills the heart of God. So I wanna show you a story of a young woman named Griselda who, is, uh, a, who has benefited from the work that IJM is doing in Guatemala. She was a victim of sexual violence, and so we won't share that part of her story just out of respect for some of the stories in the room and do not want to risk that that could potentially hurt one of you. But I do want to show her story from the moment that IJM entered into her life and began helping to rescue her out of her worst nightmare. And in seeing her story, hope that we can see the stories of those who right now are crying for help, and God could potentially send us to respond. Father, we love you. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. I thank you that you are a God of justice, that you hold accountable those, Father, who do evil, that you save those who are broken, that you hear the cries of the vulnerable. We love you. Amen.